Well, imagine it's a Saturday afternoon, and you've got just two hours to get three hours of yard work done. You've got to mow and trim and rake and weed and plant. But this is your chance. You finally have a little window, so off you go. But pretty soon, your neighbor comes up to you. He goes out to get the mail. He says hi, strikes up a little conversation, just the usual niceties and formalities. You know, hey, how you doing? Good. But your neighbor, he's not a Christian, but he's a nice guy. Then out of nowhere, he asks you about church. He says, hey, don't you go to so-and-so church? Maybe I'll, I'll visit one of these days. And that really catches you off guard. Your neighbor has never shown any interest in God or, or church. He's been, in fact, more closed, even sometimes hostile to the things of the Lord. But now he seems pretty open. And so it'd be nice if he visited church, but even more so, it seems like this window of opportunity to share the gospel with him is just opened wide right in front of you. But in that moment, this little voice speaks up inside your mind, and it says to you, we don't have time for this. We've, we've got a, just a few hours. We've got a lot of yard work to do. We, this is our only window. If you, if you talk to this guy, it could turn into an hour-long conversation. We're just too busy for this right now. This conversation takes place in your mind in just a, a millisecond, but often that little voice wins. And so you don't go any further. You don't use this opportunity to learn more, to see what your neighbor believes, to tell him about Christ. Instead, you, you wrap up the conversation with the usual formalities. Well, oh, well, have a nice day. Hope the kids are well. See you around. And that's that. The opportunity passes. You go back to your yard work. Has anything like this ever happened to you before? Or have you ever done something like this? Have you ever missed a crystal clear opportunity, an open door to share the gospel and witness Christ? I have, and I bet most of you have as well. And I bet most of you have have experienced that, that guilt that comes as the Spirit convicts, or you realize you should have said something. You missed your chance. You, you blew it. It's not wrong to want to get yard work done, but that excuse of, I don't have time for this, or I'm too busy for this, that's the flesh speaking, not the spirit. But how easily our flesh speaks up, it, it just wants what it wants, and it puts the desires of self above those which honor God or, or help others. And we often listen. And the chances are, as a believer, Look, part of you wants to tell that person about the Lord. But again, sometimes the flesh just speaks louder and you do your own thing. You serve yourself with your limited time instead of sacrificing your plans and desires for the sake of God's glory and a witness to others. I think we've all been there. Thankfully, God is gracious with us and patient with us as we fall short. And God is going to be faithful to grow us, to mature us. Part of that involves learning the lesson of what really matters in life. What, what really matters at the end of the day? Does yard work really matter? What if your car springs a leak? I mean, I, that's annoying. You're going to have to fix it. But that's not really an eternal concern. What about shopping? We need to go and buy clothes. That's important, but it's rarely a, a pressing matter. But the longer you live and the more you grow, the more you realize that, that eternal things matter more. It's not that we're never going to do yard work or fix cars or, or go shopping. We're still earthbound and we're, gonna still get, we're still going to give plenty of our time to the affairs of this world. But the point is that things of eternal impact should be our top priority. And evangelism should be near the top of that list. I was recently praying through a little bit of the Valley of Vision, which is a Puritan book of prayers. And there was a prayer on prayer. And the author said this, quote, In prayer, all my worldly cares, fears, anxieties disappear and are of as little significance as a puff of wind, end quote. And that's true. In a time of prayer, as you commune with God, that the mundane affairs of the things of this world grow strangely dim. They just don't matter that much anymore as you lift your thoughts heavenward. He went on to say, quote, In prayer, all things here below vanish, and nothing seems important but holiness of heart 
and the salvation of others, end quote. And that's true as well. You know, in biblical prayer, you're taking your eyes off of self. You're putting them on God, what he wants, what he desires. And for me, what he wants above all is, is your holiness. He wants to see your, your spiritual growth. And that also includes your witness. Salvation of others. I mean, talk about a work of eternal impact. And for, the, for us in the church, I mean, that's our great commission. That's literally that the main work the Lord left behind for us to do. And so telling others about, about Christ and his gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, that should be one of our top priorities. And so I would hope that as you grow and as you mature, as your priorities lean toward the eternal, that you'd take advantage of more of those gospel opportunities. And I hope the next time around you would flip that script you're talking to your neighbor and you're going to say back to your flesh, yes, we, we really are busy right now. And, and yeah, we, we have to get this yard work done. But, you know, this grass is not eternal. And these weeds certainly aren't eternal. But this person is. And my Lord has told me this is like the main work he wants me to do. So, you know, we're just going to sacrifice our time. We're going to sacrifice our desires at the altar and just give this person all the time needed to, to witness the gospel to him. I hope that's how it plays out for you next time. And that would be a good day's work. Even if you accomplished nothing else that day that you wanted to, you could still say that was a good day's work. You'd be pleasing to the Lord. And that's what it looks like to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Yeah, I'll tell you what, there's nothing like a good crisis to, to push that needle. Here we are, still in the midst of this COVID-19 uh, situation. But it's time like these that the Lord uses to show us what really matters in this life, what's really important and lasting. We've clearly seen now both the fragility and the futility of human life in a cursed world. What, what really matters what really lasts, even if you've accomplished much, you've seen how just, it takes just a, a little crisis. It could all be erased, everything you've done, everything you've accomplished. But knowing God and seeking God and serving God, that's what matters. This trial will end, but I continue to pray that, that we emerge with renewed and sanctified priorities. And again, evangelism needs to be or become one of those top priorities. Now, thankfully, I've already heard from some of our people already how they've, they've seen and they've taken more of these opportunities through this crisis to present the gospel. And, and amen for that. And if you've been with us, I've already preached a couple of messages on evangelism during this time. But listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the only hope for the church and the world at any time, but especially at a time like this. And so I just feel the need to continue to do my part to encourage and exhort and instruct our people specifically on evangelism. We are to be instruments in the Redeemer's hand, and it's my job to make sure you're always ready and always sharp so that when the opportunity comes, you can be used by God for his purposes. So this morning we're going to receive some more instruction on evangelism and in particular some more conviction on the need to speak, the need to share the good news when you have the opportunity. Hopefully that, that way the next time it comes around you can be that, that instrument used by God and pleasing to God. And for this lesson this morning, we're going to turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. So you can take your Bibles now, open them to 2 Kings chapter 6, and we'll eventually get into 2 Kings chapter 7. I don't get to preach from the Old Testament too often, so when I get the chance, I'll take it. We'll start in 2 Kings chapter 6. Yeah, as you're turning, I'll, I'll bring you up to speed on 2 Kings. This is the time of the kings in Israel's History, only at this point, the kingdom was divided. You have Israel in the north, Judah in the south. First and Kings recounts the history 
of Israel during this time. And it culminates with the downfall and the exile of both the northern and southern kingdoms. The second king six takes us to the northern kingdom, Israel, and the city of Samaria, which was their capital city. Might be familiar with the Samaritans from the New Testament, but they did not exist at this point. Samaria is simply the main city of northern Israel at this time. Our passage also takes us to the ministry of the great Old Testament prophet Elisha. Now, I'm sure you know Elijah, not to be confused with his successor, Elisha. Elijah was the greatest Old Testament prophet, but his successor, Elisha, was pretty great as well and performed many of the same signs and wonders as Elijah. Elisha, of course, is going to be the good guy in this passage. He's the man of God, the prophet. Who's the bad guy? Well, in most of these episodes in 1st and 2nd Kings, that the bad guy is, well, the king of Israel. Which is sad to say, but every single king of northern Israel was wicked and corrupt. And what we have here in 2nd Kings 6 is no exception. But there is someone here even more wicked. And that's the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad. The Arameans were the ancient enemies of Israel. You may not be familiar as much with the Arameans, but I'm sure you're familiar with their ancient and even modern day counterpart, the Syrians. The Arameans were essentially the Syrians. The ancient Arameans were located in much of modern day Syria. Their main city was Damascus. The Arameans themselves never really rose to prominence, but their language, Aramaic, became really the common language of the region back then. Anyway, what you really need to know is that these ancient Arameans were constantly at odds with Israel. They're always fighting. They're always trying to capture one another's cities. And so what we find here, 2 Kings 6, is just kind of business as usual. Look at verse 24 to begin. 2 Kings 6, 24. It says, now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. And many years before this, Ben-Hadad had invaded Israel, but failed. Under the reign of Ahab, Ben-Hadad tried to capture Israel's capital city, but his army was crushed. Ben-Hadad was captured, and he was under King Ahab. King Ahab had the chance to, to kill this wicked king who had oppressed Israel so much, but he let him go. Ahab himself was the most wicked king Israel really ever had. And he was later rebuked for this mistake by a prophet. But now Ahab was dead. Jehoram was king uh, in his place in Israel. Ben-Hadad had once again mustered an army to come after Samaria. This time his forces were even stronger. Verse 24, he's bringing his entire army to besiege Samaria. This time he's not leaving without taking Samaria. Now, you might not be totally familiar with what it means to besiege a city. I'm not sure how up to speed you are with your ancient warfare tactics. But back then, cities were surrounded by large walls, and they were pretty effective at keeping out an invading army. It was extremely difficult to conquer a city with walls. So oftentimes, instead of outright attacking a city that had walls. You would just lay siege or besiege that city. That means you would surround the city and cut off its supplies. Most of the farmland was outside the city walls. And so that meant those inside had a very limited supply of food, just whatever they happened to have on hand in the city storehouses. And so the result of a siege was usually famine. And this, this was basically the main tactic when sieging a city. You were trying to starve them into surrender. If you had enough time, you could just hold out and starve the inhabitants basically to death. They just walk right in. So this is what's happening. Ben-Hadad and his army, they're sieging Samaria. And it's already working quite well that the city was unprepared. And the result was this, this devastating famine. Look at verse 25, the the next verse. 
It says right after, there was a great famine in Samaria. And behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. I'm sure you get all that, right? But this verse lets us know how bad this famine was by just the, the crazy inflation that was taking place. Just to explain it, you know, first he says a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. You know, a donkey was an unclean animal. It was never eaten. But desperate times called for desperate measures. Even at that, the head of the donkey was like the least desirable part. But even the head was selling for 80 shekels of silver. That's two pounds of silver for the head of a donkey. You also have, he says, a fourth of a cab of dove's dung being sold for five shekels of silver. Now, this may literally be referring to dove's dung, which was used as as a fuel. But in desperate times, you could eat it. It could also actually be referring to the, the inedible husks of seeds. We're not entirely sure how to translate this Hebrew word. Either way, though, the point is pretty clear. Like you have something that's worthless being sold for, for a decent amount of money. This is going to show you how, this, how devastating this famine had become. And they were starting to, to starve. Now, we're continuing verses 26 through 30. You have another illustration showing just how bad this famine was. And I guess I have to warn you, there's some pretty graphic imagery here. But look, it's still recorded in scripture because this highlights just how bad this famine was and also how depraved Israel had become. So let's keep reading now at verse 26. It says, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, O king. He said, if the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king said to her, what, what is the matter with you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes Now he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. This doesn't need a lot of explanation, but it's pretty clear the people had resorted to cannibalism just to preserve their wicked, godless lives. And this indeed was part of, of a curse that God brought on Israel for their own depravity and apostasy. And it shows just how far they were going in their unbelief. And in their depravity. Anyway, the king is outraged and heartbroken over this this sight. And so first he grieves, but then he resolves to take action. And he directs his action against Elisha, the prophet. He says in verse 31, May God do so to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Although this is not the case, the king believed Elisha was somehow responsible for these circumstances, at least Elisha and his God. He failed to recognize, though, that Elisha and his God were actually the the only hope they had in this situation. Just to summarize a little bit now, so the king sends a messenger to go kill Elisha. But then right after that, he changes his mind. So the king and his guard run after to Elisha's house. Elisha was warned by God that both of them were coming. And so they're stopped at the door and the king later confesses to Elisha. He says, behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? The king realized that this calamity had befallen upon them by the Lord's plan for their wickedness. And he was right. This was a form of judgment on Israel for their wickedness. So in exasperation, he asks, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Presumably, Elisha had told him earlier to wait on the Lord, to just hold up under this siege, not to surrender to the Arameans, wait for the Lord's help. 
But now that the king had, had given up all hope, this was his last straw. He's basically throwing in the towel. Usually, though, when we come to the end of ourselves and our resources, we see God work. The end of our rope is often the beginning of God's. And that is the case here. Everyone in Samaria thought all hope was lost, including now the king. They're just thinking that there's no chance they're going to make it out of this siege alive. But now that the stage is finally set for God's miraculous deliverance. So we enter into 2 Kings chapter 7. Looking at verse 1. Then Elisha said, listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow, about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Now, again, this requires you understand a little bit about Old Testament weights and measures, but this is a significant prediction. Just by way of comparison, we learned earlier that this famine was so bad that a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. Now, Elisha predicts that tomorrow, uh, one measure of fine flour, it's about seven quarts, will be sold for just one shekel. It just shows that this is a huge turnaround. The point is that literally overnight, this famine will lift. And in fact, there's going to be such an abundance of food, it, it'll sell for nothing. Even more so, he says, this transaction will take place in the gate of Samaria. You have to know that the city gates doubled as the marketplace. That's where commerce took place, buying, selling, trading. You know, but during the siege, the gates were shut. There was no commerce. There, there was no trading. So here, Elisha is indicating that on the next day, not only would the famine be lifted, but the siege would end as well. And clearly, Elisha is predicting a completely miraculous turnaround of events for Israel. Now, humanly, such a turnaround didn't seem possible. It, it would have to start raining wheat and barley from the sky for this to happen. This was so unbelievable that some people didn't believe it. Verse 2, it says, The royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. One of the king's accompanying officers heard Elisha, but doubted his words. Elisha responded that this officer was going to see God's deliverance, but he was not going to eat of it. You can put together what that probably means. Now we finally come to verse 3. Everything so far has been introduction. This is really our main text. I've been trying to get us here. This is where uh, really that the main passage begins. But everything else is context. You have to see that to make any sense of what's about to happen next. So let's really get into verse 3. It says, Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, and the famine is in the city, we will die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come, let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. And if they kill us, we will but die. Lepers, as you likely know, they were complete outcasts in society. Not only did their disease end up deforming and disfiguring them, but they were unclean, they were cast out. So these four lepers were left to live outside the city walls. Normally, that was bad enough. But in this case, it was even worse because during the siege, whereas most people were relatively safe inside the walls, these guys were still left outside the walls. So who do you think are going to be the, the first people to either starve or be killed? 
these four lepers. They did not have a lot of options. And that's why they say to one another, why do we just sit here until we die? They're desperate and they realize it. You know, they say, if we go in the city, there's this terrible famine. We're just going to die in there with everyone else. And if we stay here, we're just going to die on our own. They've got a die, die proposition. You know, they're out of time. They're out of options. They're about to starve. And worse yet, they're lepers. So in complete desperation, they think the unthinkable. Why don't we just go over to the camp of the enemy? I mean, what do they have to lose? If the enemies kill them, well, at least they won't die by starvation. They're already dead anyways in their mind. But if by chance the enemies spare them, well, then they live. That's their only sliver of an option to actually come out of this alive. And in a time of complete desperation, it's actually quite logical. What do they have to lose? Maybe, maybe they'll find mercy. So they go. And what they find, though, is not what they expect. Now into verse 5. They rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. And when they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. I love this here. Right here we see God's miraculous deliverance at work. How would God resolve this situation and rescue Israel? Not by man's strength, that's for sure. This time God directly intervened in a supernatural way. And he just caused the Arameans to think they heard an invading army. There's no one there. But in their mind, they they were convinced, all of them, that they were all about themselves to die. This is all hill country, so perhaps over the next hill that they thought they heard the sound of thousands of soldiers and chariots coming their way. Whatever it was, it was convincing enough for them to believe they were about to be destroyed. So they just fled. And they fled fast. So strong was this influence by the Lord, they did not even pack up their tents Or take their possessions. They didn't even have time to saddle their horses. They just started running away. This is God's amazing deliverance. For God, this this is nothing to do that. But now these four lepers, they come upon this enemy camp. They find it completely pristine. But it's empty. I mean, I bet fires are still burning. Food and supplies are everywhere. But no one's home. Now, if this were you, if you were one of those four guys, what would you do? What do you think these lepers are going to do? Verse 8, when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank and carried from their silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. They went to town. And who wouldn't do the same? It's like they, they were enjoying the spoils of war without having to fight. This huge camp was filled with food and wealth. It was all theirs. I mean, they went from starving to death to having more food that they could ever eat. And they went from dirt poor outcasts to having more wealth than they could ever spend. So they, they come to the first tent. They clean it out. They go hide everything. They come back, go to the second tent, clean it out, go hide everything. And on it goes. But then, after a little while, their conscience starts to bother them. And so you see verse 9. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. 
but we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. These lepers had it right. God had miraculously scattered the Arameans and blessed them. They were on the verge of death, but now they were full and they were rich. Meanwhile, though, their fellow Israelites were still barred up in the city, starving to death, thinking the enemy was still upon them. But, you know, there's enough food and wealth here for everyone. This was God's deliverance. It was for all the people. The lepers knew this. They just couldn't keep these riches and this good news to themselves. And they were right. And for the sake of time here, I'll just summarize how this story ends. The lepers decide to return to the city. They're still not let inside. They're kept outside the gates. But from the gates, they announce to the people this good news. Some people believe, others don't. The king himself doubts it. He thinks the Arameans are hiding and waiting for them to all come out of the city. But others convince him that they've got nothing to lose. So the king sends a few people to go and check the camp of the Arameans and they confirm the good news. The enemy is gone, the siege is over, and the encampment is theirs. And so jumping down to verse 16 of chapter 7, it says that the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. And then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel. And two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. God's prophecy through Elisha came true. One day later, exactly as predicted. And Elisha's word of judgment on that royal official also came true. In verse 17, it says, Now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled on him at the gate and he died just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. And this is how the story ends. Everything that God said through Elisha came through. The famine ended just as he predicted. The siege ended just as he predicted. And that royal officer ended just as he predicted. And all God miraculously saved and delivered his people in a way they could have never expected. Now at this point, and really whenever you read through Old Testament narrative, it's good to ask the question, okay, so what is the point? What's the point of this story? What's the purpose of this passage as determined by, well, the original author? And in this case, and in most cases, the, the answer is God. This episode was recorded in scripture to show Israel just more of the nature of their God and his works of deliverance. I mean, who is this God that Israel was forsaking? He's the all-powerful God. Look how he can turn back an entire army like it's nothing. He's also the all-knowing God. Look, he's the one who declares the end from the beginning. He can tell things before they happen. And he's also a merciful God. Look at his deliverance of Israel. Even though they had become extremely wicked and corrupt and unbelieving, even though they deserved destruction, God showed them mercy and saved them. This episode is meant to show off Israel's God <clears throat> so that all the people might repent and return to their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. All of God's people through all the ages need to likewise be those who, who trust him, who hope in him, who turn to him and rely on him for deliverance, not just from famine or sword, but also from sin and death. For he is a God who delivers. So we need to be clear that the main point of this passage has to do with, with God, his character, his works, his deliverance. That being said, I believe tucked inside here is another correlated lesson. You might say an illustration of the gospel. 
and evangelism. It can be instructive to view this passage from the lens of the New Testament as an object lesson on the importance of sharing the good news. So I want to expand on this. It's kind of a side lesson you might derive here. This object lesson comes from the least likely of characters, these four lepers. But as we observe them, though, in a way that they act out the process of salvation, and they teach several object lessons about the gospel and evangelism. You know, first, these lepers realized their hopeless condition. They were desperate. They were as good as dead, and they knew it. There was nothing they could do about it. They were at the end of their rope. And likewise, with salvation, that this is always the first step. First and foremost, you have to realize your condition, that you're dead, you're lost, you've sinned, you've fallen short of the glory of God. You're outside the gates. You're going to be kept away from God's presence forever because of your sin. You stand condemned and you deserve it. You're unclean. But you know, the path of salvation, that that first step always begins with this realization that you are headed for a just judgment and you deserve it. There's nothing you can do about it. Second though, after the lepers realized their desperate condition, they did really the only thing they could. And that is hope for mercy. They knew that they were as good as dead and they could not save themselves. Literally, their only hope was just to throw themselves upon the mercy of their enemies. Even at that, they had nothing to offer and no guarantees. I mean, what would the Aramean army want with four unclean lepers? But no matter, they they simply were hoping for mercy. Mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. And these lepers, they were enemies. They deserved death. But they hoped that was not what they would find. And today with salvation, this too is the second step. And after realizing your completely desperate situation, you truly have only one option left. You can't stay where you are. Otherwise, you will perish. Your only bet is to go to this God whom you've sinned against and just plead for mercy. That's it. Plead for mercy. Even though to God, you're unclean, you have made yourself his enemy and you can't offer him anything. All you can do is just hope that he won't give you what you deserve. Thankfully, though, we learn in this text that this God is a merciful God. He wants, him, he wants his people to make him their only hope. And so this is what you too must do. Humble yourself and go to him. First, realize your helpless condition. And then second, just you cry out for mercy. The kicker though is that if you do this with God, he promises then to give to you grace. And this is what the lepers found. They realized their condition. They hoped for mercy. And then they found grace. If mercy is not giving someone what they deserve, grace is giving someone what they don't deserve. These lepers did not deserve anything from their enemies. What did they find? Unimaginable riches. They had all the food and wealth they could ever want. It was all theirs for free. They didn't do anything to earn this or deserve this. They just walked into it. And received it. And we call that grace. And as you can expect with salvation. It's, it's the same. If you humble yourself over your sin. If you cry out for mercy. God promises you. His grace. He offers as a free gift. Unimaginable spiritual riches. He grants to you eternal life. Every blessing in the heavenly places. And a future with him. Forever. You go from death to life in the fullest sense, just like that. And like the lepers, you do nothing to earn this or deserve this. You just walk in to these blessings by grace. Of course, we know that grace comes with the price. 
Someone has to pay if you're going to receive all this. And with salvation, that was Jesus. God made his mercy and grace possible by sending his son, born of a virgin, into this world, fully man yet fully God, to die on that cross and rise from the dead to pay the full penalty of our sins. The, the death you deserved, he died. And the riches he earned, you receive. But now if you turn to Jesus by faith, you too can be granted eternal life. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And it's not talking about money. But do you have his riches? Have you looked upon Jesus in repentance and faith for salvation? Have you seen him as the Savior, the one worth giving your life to follow? Don't let a day go by without doing this. Today is always the day of salvation. Repent, believe. And if you've done so, then then you become rich. You, You gain his riches. There's only one thing left to do then. Share those riches. After these four lepers realized their condition, hoped for mercy, and found grace, then they were compelled to share that good news. The deliverance God had accomplished for them was so magnificent, they just couldn't keep it to themselves. They could not keep silent. They had to share the good news. And the same is true for you. Do you truly appreciate the magnitude of deliverance God has accomplished on your behalf through Christ? You were unclean, but now you're clean. You were lost, but now you're found. You were guilty, but now you're forgiven. You're poor, but now you're rich. You were dead, but now you're alive forevermore. How can you not share this? This good news is meant for all. The gift is open to all, all who come to Jesus. How can you keep silent about the way to eternal riches? If you have found that way, you know the way. How can you not at least tell people about the way? You have found in Christ the meaning to life and the answer to death. How can you keep silent about that? And so we find here that the climax of this object lesson Evangelism. Evangelism is one of the most fundamental responses of the life that's been transformed by the gospel. What has happened to you, which you have discovered, it's just too good not to share. Yeah, look, there's a little bit of sanctified guilt here that if you keep silent for too long, the spirit will convict you. You need to say something. If you really believe Jesus is so great and his salvation is so great, how come you you don't ever tell anyone? But at the same time, guilt is never our primary motive. Just thinking and reckoning of of the, the gift we've received. Joy and thanksgiving should be that the overwhelming reasons you're just compelled to tell others. You might think, though, that that the wicked people of the world don't deserve to hear. They don't deserve forgiveness. They deserve to be judged. And similarly, the lepers could have thought that about the people of Samaria. But the lepers still did the right thing because when it comes to grace, when it comes to getting what we don't deserve, we're all in the same boat. The city was full of of wicked, undeserving people. But before God, we're all wicked, undeserving people. Just because you're a believer, that doesn't mean you're better than them. It just means you've received God's grace. And so you too still need to share, even with a world that scorns you. It's simply just the work the master has left behind for you to do. These four lepers became the unlikeliest of evangelists. So too are we. The word evangelist simply means a bringer of good news. And that's what they did. That's what you must do as well. Only 
we have even better news to deliver. Right? They announce a message of physical and temporal deliverance. We're announcing a message of spiritual and eternal salvation. And so all the more you should be an evangelist. Yeah, we know some of the church might be especially gifted in evangelism, but do you know God has called and equipped every single believer to, to be an evangelist? It's for all of us. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. He says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If you have been reconciled to God through Christ, you have been given now a ministry of reconciliation. All of you. God has commissioned you to be his reconcilers. Now your job is to bring other people into right relationship with God. And we know we do that by preaching the gospel. He says again in verse 19 of 2 Corinthians 5. He says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, and we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And notice this is something for all of us now, not just Paul or pastors, but you too. If you are saved, then you are God's ambassador. So you're to represent Christ to the world and, and share him. And you need to accept this as part of your identity as a Christian. You, you just, you are an ambassador. You are an evangelist. Just the only question is a, a good one, a vocal one, or a silent one. Yeah, I know some of this might sound intimidating or scary to some of you to, to, to share. But you can breathe a little sigh of relief that at least in the end, it's not your job to actually save people. That's not your burden to bear. That's not your job. You don't have that power. God is sovereign over salvation. And you can't control how people respond. But like the lepers, all you can do is just stand at the gates and announce to people the good news. Some will believe. Some won't. Some will trust. Some will doubt. You can't control that. So don't worry about that. You just be faithful in your calling and commission as ambassadors. You probably know uh, Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And then it says thereafter, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And God has placed his power to save in this confession in the gospel. But then it says this in Romans ten fourteen, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed. How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And the, the people of Samaria for their whole lives had scorned those four lepers. But on that day, they were beautiful. Their feet were beautiful for the good news they brought to them. This is meant to be you now. You have received. You have believed. So now you, you go. There's a lot more we could say about evangelism. But for now, simply let this word convict you. Just let this sit with you and just convict you to be compelled to speak. You know, in this COVID crisis and beyond, opportunities are never really the issue. If you're honest, you really think about it, we're presented with like countless opportunities all the time. The real issue is really just boldness and the conviction to speak. So be convicted and then speak. The world now, and really always, is spiritually starving to death. They're trapped in sin and they're just awaiting God's judgment. But you have found 
the way to life. And so while you have time and with your time, with the priority of your time, make sure you're one who announces the way, the truth, and the life to others, all of which are found in Christ. Let's do that together. Let's pray together. Our glorious God in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news that that you have announced to us that first we need to receive. Seeing ourselves like these lepers lost, desperate, dead men walking with no hope in this world. But you're our hope, Lord. We we cry out to you for mercy and, and we don't deserve that. We deserve a just judgment being cast away from your presence forever. But in your love, your great love with which you loved us. And because of your mercy, you sent Christ to die, to rise, to pay our sin debt to reconcile us. And by believing in him, by crying out to him, trusting in him, we can be saved. We can be let in. We can be made clean. We can receive eternal riches. This is such a wonderful, simple picture of the gospel. But we thank you for for those of us who have received it. We need to remember it and, and, and just revel in it. Give you thanks for it. For those who have not, open their eyes. Make them desperate and see their desperation that they would run to this open door while it's still there. And then, Lord, for those who have, we're not just to to sit and enjoy all by ourselves. We're compelled and called to share, to tell others. There's still a lost world trapped in sin. It's awaiting judgment, surrounded. They They have no hope whether they realize it or not. But may we simply stand at the gates and tell them from the, from the gates of the kingdom, share, tell, invite them in, beg them to be reconciled to Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. He's the only way. None come to the Father but through him. So convict us this morning, all of us. We need this, this blessed conviction. When the opportunities come, and, and they come, they come all the time, that when they come, Lord, we would be those who take them, who are, have enough conviction and clarity in the gospel that we will we'll speak, we'll witness They may not believe, but we will be ambassadors for Christ. Convict your people in a time like this, especially we need to be those, we need to be those who speak. And so convict us, grow us and bless us for the sake of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.